Good day, gentlemen. Eighteen months ago, the first evidence of intelligent life off the Earth was discovered. It was buried 40 feet below the lunar surface, near the crater Tycho. Its origin and purpose, still a total mystery. Welcome to the now playing reviews of 2001 A Space Odyssey and 2010 The Year We Make Contact. Hosted by Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. Today we're discussing 2001, A Space Odyssey, starring Pierre Doulet, Gary Lockwood, William Sylvester, and directed by Stanley Kubrick. Yay! Bom, 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 bom. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I am Arnie, a now-playing podcast reviewer. I became operational in Springfield, Illinois on the 12th of September, 1974. Are you going to kill me for making you watch another Kubrick movie? That's what I want to know. Stuart in L.A. And this is Jacob, and I am, by any practical definition of the words, foolproof and incapable of error. So remember that when you listen to our Batman and Robin review. <laughs> Strangely <laughs> enough, I have your Batman and Robin review in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to see how that comes up. I have a theory. Well, Stuart, I'm not going to kill you. We are here discussing 2001, though, at your behest. How could it not be? I mean, to be said, I've had a lot of encouragement. Our first Kubrick was a raging success, uh, more so than I think we even anticipated. But still not Howard the Duck. Well, <laughs> or man thing. <laughs> Thankfully, no. It was, uh, yeah, last December, our conclusion really of the year, at Stephen King... Shining, it was sort of a highlight for me of 2013. I, I love talking about Stanley Kubrick. So any opportunity I can get, I'll work it in. But this seems like a natural fit. I mean, if you look at our donation drive, we're talking about sci-fi. We're talking about Planet of the Apes. I just feel like you can't talk about Planet of the Apes and not mention the other movie that came out that same year, 1968, that had some ape sci-fi metaphysics in it. I mean, come on, 2001. It is a bona fide classic and we had to get to it sometime. Did we? Does that mean Casablanca, Citizen Kane, we have to get to all the classics sometime? I'm, I'm Seriously. Well, you know, as soon as we're done with Children of the Corn 9. Yes. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> Priorities, people. Yes. There's manglers to review. There's something to be said about films that have had so much ink spilled on them. Once in a while, I feel like, what can we add? 
But when it comes to 2001, I've been on the record on this podcast several times saying I've never seen it. But this was not my first watching. Jacob, like, film shamed me into watching it about a year ago. I just got tired of him bringing up, well, Arnie, you've never seen 2001. So I wanted to be able to next time he said it, go, yes, I have. So I saw it about a year ago. And I didn't ever say it again until this review, which you had to have watched it. Yes, exactly. But I'm kind of glad I saw it a year ago. I've had time because I knew we would be covering it at this point. When I watched it before, The Shining was already on our docket. I knew eventually we'd be doing more Kubrick. So I was watching it as a now playing reviewer, and I'm glad I had the time to ruminate on it but yes this is only my second watching and i'm the closest thing we have to a newbie and you know i've been on the record with the shining this is probably my favorite film out there if we had to give a definitive favorite this is it this is the thing though this is one of the later kubrick films i had watched it was so daunting you know you talk about these classics and you got to sit down and watch citizen kane that everyone considers you know the greatest film ever i mean that is somewhat intimidating and that's the impression i had of 2001 though i have these memories from sesame street with the the spark zarathustra theme going you know for the number one or whatever number was sponsoring the show that day they would have that theme playing and it's such a part of pop culture my dad's first macintosh he had this freeware that you'd mess up and it'd be like sorry dave i can't do that the little message would pop up (laughs) like what does that mean i don't get that my dad oh it's from a movie you'll see it someday but yeah I, i didn't see this until i was in college and uh, it quickly became one of my favorite films well i dare say that much like jaws and so many of these other classics that i've never seen i didn't necessarily see a need to watch this movie probably ever i mean i watched the oscars i watched some of the afi stuff and i watched apple ads on television i knew how i knew i can't do that dave i knew the bone flying up in the air and turning into the spaceship i mean i know the iconography i knew the space baby so i mean i even thought coming into this movie and i had to look it up after i knew the quote oh my god it's full of stars i thought it was in the movie i knew it was from 2001 somewhere so Having known all that I knew just from bits and pieces here, I felt like I'd assembled it in my mind. (laughs) I was wrong, but I thought so. Oh, how wrong you would have been, yes. Yeah, I I think the only way to get it is to go through it. I don't think you can cliff notes the version of 2001. It's not YouTubeable. I think the experience is about seating yourself to it. And it's not easy. I will go ahead and say, yes, I've seen this movie many times. My first of which was not a positive one. I was a child. I don't know how old I was. My first movie experience had been Star Wars. I had seen Alien sometime shortly thereafter. And then my dad plopped me in front of the TV to watch a film that was going to be, quote, the greatest science fiction movie of all time. Better than all of those. So you can imagine how much I loved 2001 and just sat there watching the apes kind of grunting at each other, wondering when Luke was going to show up. When was (laughs) there going to be an alien that was going to attack people? There's no way that a child is going to be prepared for this. But it haunts you. It stays with you. I've thought about the movie for a long time. I went back to it. And over time, yes, like you, Jacob, this really has morphed into being one of my favorite movies of all time. Certainly my very favorite Stanley Kubrick movie. So I'm coming to it with a lot of history, a lot of love. I've seen it in a lot of different ways, including projected theatrically in 70 millimeter format. So one of my dreams to see it that way. Yeah, no, it was great. With the intermission, and everything. I mean, they did it full on. And and it is a very different experience 
than watching it on a television set. I, I've seen this movie a lot, and I've also read the book. If you're a listener to Books and Nachos, go ahead and join me there, and I'll talk about the source material as well. You guys know Kubrick, but are you guys familiar with Arthur C. Clarke, his partner in crime for this effort? I know he wrote the screenplay, and I have read that book. I read it years and years ago. I did not reread it for this review, but yeah, he, uh, from my understanding, is it, it was kind of like, hey, write the book and be able to do all that writer stuff before the hell of having to cut it all out for the screenplay. <laughs> I do feel like it ends up turning. Let me put it this way. The book is a lot more exposition heavy. Obviously, I don't know how long this podcast is going to be, but I'm sure we're going to say more words than the movie itself <laughs> does. Also true of the book. I don't know that the book explains everything that is mysterious about this story, but it is certainly more linear and more coherent than the Kubrick vision. I, I would definitely say that although Arthur C. Clarke definitely was there on the ground floor with Kubrick, helping him conceive this story and that many of his short stories were the basis for it. Ultimately, much like Shining, and where I felt like it was a Kubrick movie over Stephen King, I feel like, yeah, Arthur C. Clarke gets left behind somewhere in the around Jupiter as uh, Kubrick jets off into uncharted waters. And... Arthur C. Clarke's, sadly enough, I know because I was a Star Trek fan in my teen years, and being a hard sci-fi author and Star Trek being hard sci-fi, and the two ran in the same circles. I read a couple of his short stories. I read actually some nonfiction and articles and interviews with him talking about Star Trek, but I've never read any of his big novels. I'm looking forward to hearing your books and nachos and getting some information out of you during this podcast, because how you would make this into any book that isn't like those children's storybooks full of pictures, I'd really like to know that. Well, I think what you're getting at, and it's very true, is that to experience 2001, it really really isn't verbal. It doesn't come to me as a clear, delineated storyline. It's not easy to tell people what this movie is about. It's an experience. It's a trip. It's a visual phantasmagoria. But it didn't start out that way. I want to just point out, when they originally hatched their plan here, I mean, Kubik had ambition, but he didn't have formal ambition. I think that he actually had planned to have voiceover narration. He was going to have hard science in there, lots of exposition. The model really was a movie from 1962 called How the West Was Won. MGM had made it in this Cinerama format, and it was basically short stories interspersed with documentaries about the expansion of America in the Old West. So he thought he could do the same thing for man expanding into the solar system. The plan was to have these little vignettes, and in between, we'd have expert real scientists telling us how did man evolve? What is space travel like? Is there sound in space? All of that stuff was going to be presented as a voiceover narration. So I think this movie was conceived and funded <laughs> with that conception in mind as being much more of a traditional story that had a proven successful formula. It obviously went somewhere else, somewhere after Kubrick got $10 million. If you've seen Room 217, the Shining documentary, then we know that this is the test footage for the moon landing Kubrick faked. <laughs> and to remind everybody where Kubrick was in his career, I mean, he had just annihilated the world. So where else was he going to go but outer space? Dr. Strangelove destroyed everyone in nuclear holocaust and laughed while it, they did it. It would seem very hard to, as a follow-up. What do you do after that? But Kubrick had always nurtured an idea in secret that he wanted to imagine a good 
science fiction movie. He was of the opinion that they had never been made. And if you've listened to our donation drive review of Thing from Another World, you know, I kind of agree with him. Science fiction before 1968 is a very different thing and full of campiness and imagery that's hard to take seriously. I think it would be interesting. I'm sure someone's done it. It's charted out sci-fi throughout cinematic history. And I think this would be very different. That's my feeling anyway. I don't have the firsthand knowledge of watching a ton of old, old sci-fi. I kind of have the caricature, the stereotype of what I think, you know, that 1950s and 60s stuff is like. This does feel very different, though, when you sit down and watch it. Obviously, this is different from the pulp stuff, and I've watched some of it. Most of it probably had Tom Crow and Servo in front of it laughing at the movie, (laughs) but I've seen a lot of it and then just whatever I would turn on in my preteen years on a Sunday afternoon, whatever black and white sci-fi they were showing. But that was still coming out around this time, too. I dare say even Planet of the Apes is somewhat more along the lines of that thing from another world or Flash Gordon type stuff. The thing I didn't know is if there were the outliers. Were there more artful science fiction films pre-2001 or was it all just hokery and this was the first one to try to even take the subject? I'd say the other ones took it seriously but try to go for perhaps a more adult audience and a less sci-fi, fantastical, kind of teenage pulp audience. Well, here's the difference. Kubrick wanted it to be real. That's why he went with Arthur C. Clarke. He had a whole list of science fiction writers, Ray Bradbury, you name it. He considered them. He went with Arthur C. Clarke because Arthur C. Clarke is first and foremost a real authority on space and the oceans. He knows his science. He is probably the most studied and learned man and accomplished man in the field ever, or at least one of them. And so he wanted to bring in somebody who was going to make it real for people. And beyond that, the technicians that he hired, the people that he wanted to bring in here. When you look at Hollywood sci-fi movies before that period, they were like friends of the producers. They got hired and put in the makeup room. Oh, my cousin Larry, he needs a job. Well, let's have him do this sci-fi makeup. He brought in real NASA technicians. He brought engineers that thought about how these ships could be designed to actually work. And there is a level of plausibility that has never been accomplished before in this movie. I think it comes gleaming through. Whether you like the movie or not, the movie is a stunning example of what space travel could be. You're convincing me. Was he working on all this during the faking of the moon landing? (laughs) Well, he was doing it during the space race. Keep in mind, the other thing perspective to have here is for the 1960s, this was not just a fantasy This was politics. This was every year somebody doing something new. Oh, the Russians just had the first man do a spacewalk. Oh, they got a Sputnik up there. And so we got to compete. And every year there was a new breakthrough. I mean, they were actually worried about that. (laughs) Kubrick actually tried to get insurance for the film because he was afraid they were going to find life on Mars before he presented his vision of aliens. He was concerned that reality would beat him to the punch. And so they worked on this a very long time. This was four years in the making, and it would have been terribly devastating to be six months before you release the movie and then something happens they land on the moon and you find out it's not as you present it they tried to include as much real science as they could but keep in mind we hadn't made it to the moon yet we didn't even have a picture of the full earth yet they had to create all these things so he went to the people that best could do that we would have had a picture of the earth from a satellite right i mean we hadn't gone to the moon but we had monkeys up there and orbiting we we orbited we didn't have a picture from the moon therefore we did not have the full globe of the earth we had parts of it oh okay which is why it's inaccurate <laughs> when you actually see the earth in the movie i Didn't notice the inaccuracy. But Stuart, why don't you tell them what they spent four years making in a 
plot summary, <laughs> if you could call it such a thing. <laughs> I'll be brief. I think a lot of this movie is debatable as to what's going on, so I'll just stick to the hard facts. From our first footsteps on planet Earth to the most recent rocket launch into outer space, mankind has been guided towards an incomprehensible destiny by a mysterious alien force. The evolution began a million years ago in the desolate plains of Africa, where primitive simian ancestors eked out an existence plagued by tribal warfare, predatory leopards, and a dwindling supply of edible plants. Fortunes changed with the appearance of the monolith, a magical rectangle that towers over the savages one morning and telepathically imbues them with the knowledge that bones can be refashioned into weapons. With just a few swings from their new tool, primitive man is transformed from vegetarian to meat-eater, from hunted prey to master of his domain. The monolith isn't seen again until our species has colonized the moon in the titular new millennium. Astronauts, detecting unusual magnetic energy emanating beneath the lunar surface, excavate the Tycho Crater and come face-to-face with the baffling black box once more. Dr. Haywood Floyd, chairman of the National Committee for Aeronautics, is brought up from Earth to inspect the anomaly, and he helps float a cover story about a viral outbreak on the moon base to keep the rest of the prying scientific community at bay. The monolith transmits an ear-splitting signal back to Jupiter when it comes into contact with sunlight, and Dr. Floyd approves a space mission to follow the sound to its receiver. Eighteen months later, the skeleton crew of Discovery 1 prepare for a close encounter with a second, larger monolith in orbit around the giant planet. But shortly before the rendezvous, artificially intelligent computer HAL malfunctions and begins killing off the human crew. Mission Commander Dave Bowman, played by Keir DeLay, braves the void of space without a helmet after being marooned in a space pod, eventually making his way back to the mainframe's logic memory center and shutting the paranoid AI down. Though not before his colleague Frank Poole and three scientists in hypersleep are murdered. What happens next? Well, that's anyone's guess, as Dave pilots his space pod into a stargate, and travels to a dimension of unprecedented psychedelic wonder, ultimately coming to rest in a creepy parlor complete with half-bath and a continental breakfast. Aged from his journey, Dave eventually dies as an old man in bed, but is reborn a star child. The monolith returns this floating fetus, formerly known as Dave Bowman, to Earth for one last nostalgic look at where he came from as the Strauss music swells and credits roll. And a lot of that is interpretation, right? I mean, maybe? Yeah, you're right. Some of the stuff I brought up, maybe I'm influenced by reading the book and some of the commentaries. I consumed a lot for this podcast, so maybe I'm reporting what other people have said and not what this movie actually presents. Let's get into it. Let's see. I mean, I think that one of the joys of this movie is that a hundred different people could watch it and have a hundred different interpretation. Kubrick wanted this to play like music. That was the goal. And I really do feel like it is arranged like classic music. Like there are movements. And rather than it being a story, I just feel like there are different songs that are strung together and themes come in and out again. But no, it doesn't feel like any other movie I've ever watched before. Yeah, this feels like a symphony. It feels like a ballet. Right off the beginning, we have three minutes of black screen with this atonal music. It feels like you're listening to the orchestra tune up, tune their stringed instruments get ready to blast into a a symphonic piece. Well, Stuart, you said that it's not like any movie you've seen before. It's not like any movie I'd seen 
that came out before, but it's like a hell of a lot of movies I've seen before, and I have no way to contextualize this movie without discussing, basically, the films that came out of this. And, Jacob, you talk about that opening symphony. It's thanks to Star Trek The Motion Picture that I wasn't completely dumbfounded when I put in the Blu-ray. I have the Blu-ray of this, and I can highly highly recommend the blu-ray for the picture yes. gorgeous picture but it has no menu you put in the disc and it just plays but because it starts with this blank screen if it hadn't been for star trek the motion picture and then later the blu-ray of the sound of music i would have thought my <laughs> blu-ray player was broken <laughs> i didn't know you like sound of music yeah it's awesome one of my faves so i never knew it had an overture until that blu-ray came out so I, when i put it in and i just have this black screen with nothing on it at least star trek gave me stars i'm like is there a menu coming oh oh it's the music i wish they still did this today to be honest i wish when i went to see amazing spider-man i sat down to like four minutes of hans zimmer just so people could put their phones away and i could watch the movie you don't like watching the 20 and learning what tbs is going to be premiering this fall no not at all <laughs> indeed uh, a lot has changed in the movie viewing and not all for the better uh, you know now it feels like it announces something important like wow i i think the last time i saw an overture or, or an intermission in a movie it was kenneth Branagh's hamlet back in 96 but no it's not done anymore but i don't think it would have been that different in 1968 to see something like this kubrick had done it in spartacus uh, of all things i mean one of his earlier films it was pretty common like you said sound of music it's an expectation. Soundtracks were big money. Studios saw a big selling point into having new original music in their movies. So one of the controversial choices that Kubrick made was, after a score was commissioned by his friend Alex North, he nixed it and said, uh-uh, I'm going to use music that already exist. All the songs that are here were songs that were composed by people decades, sometimes centuries before. And that's actually something that I like overall. And we'll talk about the specific pieces of music as we go through. But another thing, you were surprised I like the sound of music. Stuart has outed me for liking, you know, Millie Vanilli, Barry Manilow, and Kiss on many of these podcasts. But what you may not realize is I grew up in a house with Mozart, Bach, and Strauss. So this music makes me comfortable, except for the overture here at the beginning. I wasn't familiar with it, but it was mood setting it heightened anxiety if you listen to that opening overture it really and a lot of the music throughout this film and not just the music but the sound effects the overall audio design is there to i think put you on edge and get a emotional reaction that most scores don't do most scores are there to go for the common beats the sadness the happiness the triumph this goes for more the tension the suspense like you said jacob a it almost sounds like an orchestra tuning up before they're about to start playing. Later on, I mean, you get this choir and it is chaotic. It's voices going all over the place. Yeah, it does put you on edge. What is going to happen next? Is this monolith going to explode and kill all the eight men? Like this music really does set, I would say, the majority of the mood. You take out this music. It would be interesting to see a cut with the original score to see how much it changes this film. Because to me, the music here is such a huge factor. 
Yeah, I agree. They played it during rushes when they were filming and editing the movie and they just fell in love with Blue Danube and this piece at the Overture is called Atmospheres. They just, they liked it so much they couldn't go with the new score when it finally arrived. Kubrick, you know, he's a man that likes what he likes and he is not afraid to offend people. If it's unpopular, so be it. His composer, Alex North, did not find out until the premiere. He walked into the theater thinking he was going to see the visuals paired with his score and he walked out feeling like he had been duped and ended up reusing his score. You can actually hear it in a really awful William Castle movie about uh, killer mimes and puppets uh, called Shanks. <laughs> it's it's a weird one, but uh, I'll leave it at that. The score is out there if you want to hear it, the originally composed 2001 score. But no, all the pieces here, this is stuff that pre-existed and became a big seller. And of course, the most famous piece of music, I'm not going to try to pronounce it. I'll look at you, Stuart, to pronounce the name of the piece by Strauss. It's actually in English. That's the craziest thing. I kept being like, what's the translation? What's the translation? Well, that is actually how you say it. It is... Thus spoke Zarathustra, which is actually, it's a ode to a philosopher that we've definitely discussed before in Superman, Frederick Nietzsche. Yeah, Thus spoke Zarathustra is the piece where he talks about the Ubermensch, the Superman. Yeah, so it's a nice coincidence. Already, at the announcement here, they're bringing in philosophical ideas, intended or not, that deconstructionists are going to play with. I, I think just by picking this piece of music, no matter how it sounds, just by the fact that it's based on Nietzsche, you're, you're sort of announcing themes and ideas. Of course, like you said, it was a temp score, so maybe it was intended, maybe it wasn't, but like you said, deconstructionists, they'll grip onto it with their teeth and take it to the ends of the earth. And don't get too hung up on intention with Cuba because he doesn't have hard explanations for this stuff. He wanted it to work on a subconscious level. He doesn't have an explanation to give to you about what all of this means. He went with a feeling. He knew what he was going after without knowing how to get there. And this movie is, like The Shining, very improvised. They, it changed so much, which is why even now you can read the book and see that Arthur C. Clarke was working off drafts that Kubrick excised, that there are major differences between the two because Kubrick just kept changing it. He actually had to stop. They ran out of money. He considered the movie unfinished but put it out there because there was no more money to keep working on it. But like The Shining, I think he would have kept going at this forever if allowed. Well, when we get past the overture and the opening score there, we get to the monkeys. And I knew there <laughs> were apes in this movie. I knew the throwing of the bone. But to be completely honest, in my first watching, I was like, okay, when are they throwing the bone? What's going on? Why are we spending so much time there? I really thought it was going to be like a two-minute introduction. <laughs> Not 17 minutes? I was so shocked that it turns into this, like, Nat Geo special with aardvarks and apes and cheetahs, just minus the British narrator. <laughs> And remember, it was supposed to have the British narrator. I'm going to applaud the movie for not putting that narration in. How tempting would have been? How much pressure would Kubrick have been under to deliver something that was explained? This is the most audacious aspect of 2001, that he lets things go by without comment for hours, that this is a two-hour and 25-minute movie in which there are only 40 minutes of dialogue. And most of that's banal. I mean, he allows his visuals to speak volumes. It's the 
first time he did that. There was voiceover narration in Lolita. There was voiceover narration in Strangelove, The Killing. He had never taken this risk before. So it was a huge one. And I got to say, the Dawn of Man segment is probably my favorite in the movie. You know what? I think it's great storytelling. It's a silent film, essentially. Right. I mean, there's some great music, but I get so much. I mean, you start off in the wilderness and this shot of bones and cheetahs eating the ape men. It's all about death. And you see them cowering in their caves and they're living with the tappers eating plant. Like I get so much from this and it's all visual. There's not one piece of voiceover telling me what to think, telling me what's going on. I think it's very clear storytelling what's going on with these ape men. Yeah, I think it would have been awful to have Dr. Lewis Leakey talk about his research in Africa and how he found these bones of these people. I'm not so sure about the storytelling. It took me a little bit to figure out what was going on, like the two different tribes of the apes there. I, it's there, but it's a little confusing because I'm going to say I think these costumes are tremendous. And the very first time I watched this, for maybe the first five minutes, I thought these were apes. Yeah, he didn't want these to be so primitive. I think he wanted a more humanoid i've read from what i read the movie censors they didn't want nudity in here so they had to go with more ape men looking things so they didn't have boobies flapping around right and no computers i just want to remind people now they can get andy circus and you know he <laughs> looks like a gorilla to play all the apes <laughs> yeah yeah but they had to go with french minds here they had to go with people that knew body movement and that could emulate and study and do this and were thin enough that they could fit into the suits and not look bulky. It was a challenge. But over on our donation series, Planet of the Apes, we've talked about this very same year, some Academy Award winning man-ape effects. Well, they don't hold a bone to what we're seeing here where I thought I was looking at apes. I mean, the lip articulation on these masks is amazing. Well, they're not speaking English. It's worth pointing out that he doesn't actually have them talk, so they're grunting, but yeah, it's good. The snarling is where the lips really <laughs> became well. It's the eyes that eventually gave it away, and there's one bad mask in them. But when I saw a real leopard attacking something my first thought wasn't it's a padded suit my first thought was they went out and filmed some nature <laughs> so it took me a while and perhaps because of my expectation the first time i got it i didn't think the storytelling was so well done it was more like we're spending a hell of a lot of time with these apes there's no way this would be done today this like you said would be a two minute intro to let's get to the bone toss but no kubrick's gonna take his time and when that monolith shows up Again, that's like the, at least in this ape story, that's the halfway point for me. And this is where the storytelling works because I could tell a difference. I could tell they're acting different. Well, mainly because they're murdering, but there's a different dynamic once that monolith shows up. And I could tell that difference from what was going on before without any voiceover, just from the scenes we've seen. Now, I want to throw in something that Stuart said in his plot summary, though. The monolith, it just appears. And man, Kubrick loves to do these like, harsh cuts of both visual and sound, right? It appears and there's the noise and you see the sun coming up over it and then just cut. Did time pass? What's going on? And then we see an ape learn to use a bone as a tool. And I'm getting, even on my first watching, they call it the dawn of man. And he did make Dr. Strangelove. So the difference between man and beast is man creates weapons. This was the start of the arms race right here. But Stuart, in your plot summary, you said the monolith had an influence on them. 
did it? Or was it there to witness the first use of a tool? I mean, I don't know that this can be definitively said from watching the movie. You can. When they see that scene of that ape picking up the bone, there's an inner cut. There's an inner cut of the monolith. We're seeing him think about that thing. Yeah, to me, the way they approach it and they start touching it and the next thing they show, to me, the storytelling is saying this monolith inspired, gave knowledge, whatever, to these apes to start using tools. Yeah, and when he's smashing those bones, it's almost like he's playing the drums or the xylophone with this music swelling up. We see tappers falling to the ground. Yeah, we get to see the monolith, all these inner cuts. It's telling me that this monolith has changed these eight people. Yeah, they cut back to it. They wanted to emphasize that. It's just a brief cut. It's almost subliminal. But yeah, the monolith. Okay, let me just get it out there. Perhaps my favorite representation of God ever put to film. It is so common to humanize the higher power. I mean, it's biblical, right? man was created in God's image, that they went this route, that it's geometric, that it looks nothing like us, that it could be a doorway, that it could be a void, it could be nothing. It's an arrow, it points to the next level. I mean, there's just so many ideas that this thing carries with it. It's powerful and scary. It's got that Leggetti theme song to it with the choral stuff. It's fearful. It's God-fearing is what I have when I witness that monolith. Every time I see it, I'm quaking. It would be a very different thing if they played da da da. Every time you saw it, you'd think it was a hero. You'd think it was doing something good. That music... That facelessness, I'm worried that the influence is not positive. It may be helping man evolve, but into what and by what means is arguable. Yeah, that score, it's scary. That choir is scary. It's so chaotic, almost like a swarm of bees or something like that. And I love the way the apes are just so afraid at first to touch it. I mean, you could tell that this is a ominous presence. And one of the things I notice, especially when it first appears here in the wilderness with the dawn of man, I'm sure it's just the way it's filmed, but it almost looks like to me it's painted on it it looks out of place to me especially in that background but it just there's something otherworldly looking about this monolith that yeah it's not of that or maybe it is of the earth maybe it dug its way out of the ground we will never know but yeah to me it's it's otherworldly is it god is it aliens who knows but it's not from our planet i know because i was at the kubrick exhibit last year in los angeles and i got to stand right next to this thing it's a surfboard guys It's a piece of wood (laughs) that they sprayed with graphite. It's basically pencil shavings on a surfboard. That's all it is. Very simple. They had lots of different concepts. Originally, it was going to be a pyramid. And then they wanted it to make like it was going to be a screen that showed the apes maybe how to make fire. Like a giant iPad, basically. You could, you know, go to YouTube and watch how to make fire or, or, you know, pick up sticks or something like that. Terrible. Thank God they didn't do that. The simplest idea is the spookiest. The ominous, faceless quality of this monolith. Maybe it is the God or maybe it's the representation of God. We'll never know. But my interpretation has always been that this was our creators. And that's why they have an interest in us. They have something invested in seeing us flourish here. Well, whether you call it God or whatever, two things about this. First, I took this as extraterrestrial, not divine. Given where this movie goes, and I knew where this movie was going into space, I took this as an alien representation, not as God. You could say we were put here by aliens and aliens are our God. I don't want to have that debate. But the difference is really the difference between science and faith. I mean, it's the same thing. We're all believing that there's something beyond ourselves outside this planet. But yeah, how you want to interpret that, whether the scientific definition of an ET or a more 
spiritual base. I think we're saying the same thing. It's an alien god. And it doesn't look like a surfboard to me. It looks like a tombstone or a coffin or, honestly, a Hershey chocolate bar. It's very square, right? It's a rectangle. Yeah, it's geometric. It's math. I mean, it's like nothing else in the plane. And that's one of the things I love about it, that it enters this world that is all wilderness, all these open spaces. And by the end of this movie, slowly but surely, everything becomes more geometric until people are almost imprisoned in it. I think it's a part of the design that things become more and more geometric like this obelisk. But for its first introduction, when it's just having its first influence on man, there's nothing else like it on Earth or in space. And don't think that the Planet of the Apes special effects team didn't want in on this. They begged Kubrick for secrets. They tried everything to learn about his makeup effects. He showed them the door. He wasn't sharing anything. The other thing is, it, it's you said the surfboard thing. Seeing it in the movie, it was much smaller, at least in its earthly representation than I had ever expected the monolith to be. Yeah, it's about seven feet, maybe eight. It's not that big. It's not Stonehenge. No, no, no. I did always get, the, speaking of Stonehenge, I always did get the impression was that the Druids attempt to recreate a monolith that perhaps inspired them or, or their ancestors. I do think there is something to that. We have all these geometric shapes throughout history, pyramids, the Stonehenge. I do wonder if Kubrick was playing off of that mythology. I know that Arthur C. Clarke wanted it to be pyramid. And that definitely works in with alien mythology, the pyramids in Egypt, the Aztec pyramids. But I think Kubrick wanted to go with something that hadn't been done before. Something I want to point out, though, again, whether it's God or just an alien influence, it could have taught us a lot of things. We didn't know shit, right? We were dying. When you look at what was happening with people, we were barely surviving. We were fighting with tapers about, you know, over a berry or two. There's not much going on in this desert. But what it teaches us is not how to make fire. It's not inventing the wheel, which I always thought was the first invention. It's how to kill. Again, I ask, what does that mean about the monolith? What does it mean about these aliens that that's how we're going to dominate the planet? Again, there's a lot of interpretation. Is it that it taught specifically weaponry? Or did it just advance the intelligence and monoliths could spring up across the galaxy and a million different species could touch the monolith and it's homo... Whatever that would be, Cro-Magnon, Ape Man, the missing link, it was in our genetic code that we advanced to weaponry. I kind of, because I'm cynical, took it as the nature of man is to kill. The first step of humanity was to get a weapon. It just gave us the push on that first step. But I didn't take it as it gave us a weapon. My interpretation has always been that technology brings violence. That's what this seems to be saying to me. The YouTube comment section proves that true. <laughs> <laughs> YouTube comment section is something that should be avoided at all costs. The bone, you, yeah, it could be used for a lot of things. We do see them killing tapers and they start eating meat. But we also see there was some gang warfare going on before, but now it turns violent. It, it does seem that this is the way to dominate each other. And we'll see in the far future in this film where technology becomes murderous. I think this point can be made even more clear if Kubrick wanted to make it clear. It's clear in the book. We'll get to this jump cut. It's very clear what this bone turns into. In the book, in this film, it's a little more ambiguous. Well, in the film, I took it again as the first tool, and it turns into a space station, right? So it's just, there's the first tool, jump cut to the most technologically advanced tool that we would have in 2001. Because, of course, in 2001, Pan Am gives space 
flights. Yeah, but in the book, it's very clear that this is not just a space station, a benevolent space station for Pan Am to land into. It is a nuclear space station that U.S. and Russia are at odds, that their tensions are high, and that the next step, it's not the atom bomb, it's, it's Star Wars, it's weapons in space. So I think the book draws that connection more. I do think if you're just watching this film without that knowledge, they'll take it the way you do, Arnie. This is technology. We go from the first tool, the bone, to the ultimate in technology, the space station. Right. And if Arthur C. Clarke had had his way, this space station would make a reappearance at the end when the star baby comes. But we'll get there when we get there. Like you, Jacob, because I've read the book, because I've heard the commentaries, yeah, I saw it as going from a primitive weapon to the most advanced weapon. It wasn't just technology. It was was another means to kill masses of people. And this goes to what you did say about the voiceover, Stuart. If that was made clear, my interpretation would be very different. But looking at the film as it was released, goddamn, there's a lot of ambiguity in here. Yeah, we don't get voiceover, we get the Blue Danube. We get a ballet, I would call it, of just spaceships floating around in space. This to me, almost, again, it's not a movie, it's a symphony, and now it's a ballet, and we're gonna see Pan Am space shuttles float around, and satellites float around throughout space. And may I just say, this scene is where I wished Kubrick was still alive so I could kick him in the balls. Because it's his fault that Robert Wise did this exact same boring-ass shit to lesser effect in Star Trek The Motion Picture. So are you calling this boring here, or just in Star Trek? I'm saying this is what Star Trek The Motion Picture was aping poorly. Oh, sure. So... (laughs) I mean, Star Wars came out. Paramount said, we need a Star Wars. Robert Wise decided to make 2001 with the Enterprise. I mean, I've seen Star Trek The Motion Picture two dozen times or more. So there are so many scenes in 2001 that I'm watching. When I'm seeing it the first time, I'm like, Robert Wise ripped this off. Never knew. Well, it's not just Star Trek, Arnie. Come on, you can admit it. Star Wars. Alien. I'll go ahead and go to my favorite. Alien. So much of modern science fiction owes a debt to this segment in particular. It's just a fountainhead of ideas about design for space. Again, these are real engineers. These aren't prop people that have no idea and just stick some doodads on a paper airplane or or a paper plate. These are people that know how things fly, who have actually been paid to work on flight, and this holds up. I gotta say, the uh, special effects, the marvelry here is just as amazing now as it would have been in 1968. I'll agree that the effects are years ahead of their time. I'm surprised that I'm not seeing strings and paper mache, which is kind of what I'd expect from the 60s. Instead, honestly, this looks better than a lot of films that have come out in the past five years <laughs> to me this is so much of a love letter about space I, and that's why i give it allowance to just linger and show all these different designs i mean this was i wonder what it's like to be in the audience in 1968 where we have not achieved even to land a man on the moon yet and to be able to see all these ideas and just kind of revel and kind of let them linger i, I think even today i mean nasa's kind of stagnant now we we haven't achieved much since the 70s with space and and so to me even now watching this yeah this is when i see people saying we need to give more funding to nasa we really need to get to mars this is inspiring to me this makes me go yeah maybe that is an aspiration we should achieve not only that but it's the irony we are in awe oh my god this is our future we're gonna go to a space station we're gonna have a moon base this is awesome but look at everybody in this film the Character that we're introduced next, Dr. Floyd, he's asleep. He's bored. He couldn't care less that he's on a rocket ship to a space station. He's checking into a hojo. Okay, but we are not in awe. The 
naive audiences who'd never seen this type of thing in 1968 were in awe. We are like, yeah, is this a tech demo? Is Kubrick so in love with the technology he created? Which is great. Again, looks better than stuff that came out in the past five years, but... Man, it's like they're going to squeeze every penny out of what they put into those models by leaving them on screen a long time. I am in awe, Arnie. Now I am still in awe. And it's not just the spaceships floating around. You you got the stewardess and, you know, when she's doing the space grip walk and going upside down to go into the different... I I don't know. This, it opens up my mind and like, wow, it inspires me to want to go out in space. It gives me that kind of aspiration instead of just being, you know, oh, nothing's out there worth exploring. I think this is a great piece of propaganda for NASA, is what I'm saying. You see, and I, I went a different way. I looked at it and I went, oh, isn't that quaint that this is how they thought space would be? They thought you'd drink all your food, you know? If it had been a couple years later, we'd have seen a Tang logo. But I did like, you know, the use of the rotating room when she walks on the ceiling. It confused me, because I'm watching this two-dimensionally. I didn't know why she walked on the ceiling and did a 270 degree walk to go to the left. I'm like, why didn't she just turn left? <laughs> It was There was some bits of confusion there, but no doubt to audiences in the 60s, they had to have just crapped their pants at how cool it looked. I think it's cool now. I'm in, in awe with Jacob. I think they're simple optical tricks. Yeah, you can figure out how they are, but why even spoil it? That whole flipping of the pen and grabbing it, I mean, all that stuff is magical to me, then and now. But I don't think we're just meant to be in awe. There is a wry, Kubrick, satirical sense of humor underlining all of this, and it comes through with the banality of it all. I mean, it comes through in the next few scenes on the space station. These aren't people that are impressed with what they have done. These are scientists who are bored, have nothing really interesting to say, and who are distanced from their fellow man. I mean, it's actually very sad that moment that we have Floyd calling his daughter, no one's watching her, and she is not going to see him on her birthday. I do feel like one of the things that drew Kubrick to Arthur C. Clarke's writing was that there's always a sadness, even when he marvels at what we've accomplished with science. There's a sadness to watching us progress further and further away from each other. And that's something I noted. I mean, it's not something I saw the first few times, but after watching this multiple times, they're in a Hilton. There's a Howard Johnson's on the moon. Like, you can get Howard Johnson fish sticks. Yeah. Why would you go cheap? I I mean, come on, you're at the moon. Just pay the Hilton price, right? (laughs) I don't eat at a Hojo. I laughed at that, and I, I had to wonder, is that a commentary, or is it, this looked like a really expensive movie, you gotta pay the bills some I was shocked that a call from the moon to Earth at hotel rates is only $1.70. Like, you can't even get a rate that good now. You can't get a gallon of gas for that. (laughs) Yeah. And what's a bush, baby? Is that a doll or has slavery been reinstituted? No, it's a a little squirrel-like animal. Okay. All right. Good. I, I had the same unfortunate thought when she said she wanted a bush baby. Because everyone I'm seeing is white. I'm like, what happened to the black people? Yeah, but there is, you know, these people, they just lounge around, you know, they got their awesome, like, 60s Art Deco chairs they're lounging around in, and yeah, there is a blasé about it. They're not impressed. They're wondering, hey, what's this space virus going on in the moon? Yes, and I'm finally starting to wonder what the plot is, so they start talking about a space virus. I'm like, yes, yes, story, story! And that is where the narrative really kind of begins. I mean, it begins with the mystery of what is the monolith in the past time, but now, after a lot of waltzing in space, I'm curious what this movie's really going to be about. I-, I thought the whole thing was about how. So, 
I'm confused and very intrigued to know what's going on. I'm as interested as these blasé scientists in the Ikea furniture. The thing I'll say, I I love the first act. It's the second act. This seems like the exposition act to me. And there's people talking. We know people's motivations. It's not ambiguous like ape men walking around. I guess you got to say this stuff to give this movie some kind of plot. It's just not as interesting to me. I love the stuff where we're floating around in space and just showing that. But uh, when we get into this conference, some of this stuff goes on too long for me where they're sitting around discussing what they found. It's interesting. I just wish this stuff could have been cut and and more direct. And to me, this is Kubrick's sense of humor. This is the idea that even though we're in space and they've found, quote, the greatest discovery of all time, uh, they're going to keep their manners about them and no one's going to, no one breaks character here. Everyone, yeah, looks like they've been drugged here. I think that's part of the commentary. I think that's what part of this movie is about, is that man has progressed, but I still feel like when people are talking, they're grunting apes. They don't have anything interesting to say. We are still waiting to evolve to the next step. Nothing that has happened in the millions of years between the apes and now seems to matter, but it is going to change when the monolith comes back. Could it just be that all these actors are so bored? Take 108! (laughs) No, it couldn't, because Kubrick would not allow a bored take to go by unless he wanted a bored take. Make no mistake, every performance given is the one that Kubrick wanted. This is his humor, I'm telling you. This is his commentary, and it's not dissimilar from Strangelove. I mean, Strangelove, you saw a lot of proper Englishmen debating about the moral conduct of nuclear war. That was funny. And here, I think it's funny that these people are talking about amazing alien discoveries and they're acting like they would rather be asleep. Yeah, Strange Love is obvious satire, and I th- I get what you're saying. This isn't satire, but there is a humor to it. It's something yes. I hadn't really caught on to the many times I've watched this, but I get what you're saying now, is that, yeah, there is this juxtaposition, this amazing space stuff going on, and uh, it's kind of like everyday, normal, boring, let's, you know, go by the book stuff. Yeah, okay, I get what you're saying. You know where I actually laughed out loud is when he's on the ship to actually go to the excavation site. Someone is just like, wow, your terrific speech. It really beefed up morale. I'm like, really? <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, it's it's so deadpan. And it wouldn't be funny to me unless we hadn't just lingered the way it is. I am going to argue the pace is lengthy by design. It is not because he's masturbating and just wants to show off what he can do with special effects. He wants to show that this is a lethargic, boring, disappointing future. Well, I I think he is masturbating. I think we see the cum in the later shot. I'll point it out when we get there. But at this point, I didn't take this as satire. I took this as military. If you have an alien discovery, especially, you know, I don't see world unity. I only see white Americans everywhere. I see this as top secret cover-up government bureaucracy. So that's how I took everything. You've got the photographer in the plaid suit. I took this as military op, top secret. They're not necessarily blasé so much as desensitized. They are spooks and this is what they're there to do. But I'll agree with Jacob. On my second watching, it became very clear that this is my least favorite segment. I don't like this segment of the movie. And maybe it's because it's going for Dr. Strangelove satire and I don't like Dr. Strangelove. But, I mean, I've only seen it once but I didn't like it when I saw it. I have no real reason to return. But this section here, it does feel like the exposition, get things going scene where even the monkeys with no dialogue I found myself far more intrigued with. This, if Kubrick wants to bore me to get a point home, well, he succeeded and I'm bored. Well, and I want to point out, this is the root 
of the entire project. Kubrick had read many short stories by Arthur C. Clarke. He ended up settling on The Sentinel, which is eight pages long and basically is this section. They changed it a bit. Originally, the plan was rather than seeing Floyd fly in here and find the thing already excavated, they were going to actually have a crew uncover it. And so it was going to be, I sense magnetism under the earth, we'd see the drill, we'd see all of that. But same point. I mean, the whole idea is that they have a device that has been sitting underneath the earth and has not been exposed to sunlight. But the second that it has been exposed to sunlight, it's going to trigger an alarm and it's going to tell whatever put it there that we're ready for the next step. Because that's kind of what happens here. When we finally get to the excavation site, they're sitting there, they're standing around. I don't think it shrieks because it doesn't like its picture taken. (laughs) I think it's because the sun is now finally above it and it has not experienced sunlight in who knows how many eons. And that may have just been a trigger. The aliens or God, whoever buried this, hey, if it was unearthed, that obviously means there's some civilization advanced enough. They're ready for the next step. And I took this as the signaling the same way you guys did on my second viewing. On my first viewing, I was very confused because it does this high-pitched shriek, and then we do a jump cut away from the story. And so I'm like, did it kill them all? And with the last time we jumped millennia into the future, where is this next one happening? It's not until later we find, you know, it says 18 months later, but I was confused what happened to all of them. I thought the monolith was homicidal the first time. I thought it was a negative thing. Everybody's grabbing their head like it's hurting them, and then we just cut away. And Kubrick did that with the apes, the loud noise, and cut away. He does it again here. But we don't know what happened to those people. So only on a second viewing did I catch, okay, it is sending a signal so that we can follow that signal. I still think that's part of the fun of watching it for the first time, is that mystery. Like, what is this monolith? You know, it causes ape men to kill other ape men. Even though, listen to Planet of the Apes, Apes shall never kill ape. And then here, yeah, we hear this high buzz and it just cuts. Like, to me, that builds this mystery. What is going on? I I like that. Yeah, I agree. I I think the best you can hope for with a first viewing of 2001 is to be hypnotized. And then you go back and you try to figure out. But there's no way on first viewing that you're going to see these connections. It's not expected. Kubrick didn't want you to feel confident that you knew what was going on. It's Again, I think it's like music. I see them as movements in a symphony. That first movement, it was, you know, like the creation of technology. The second movement, it was the celebration of technology. The third movement, I'll call it the failure of technology. The Jupiter mission of Discovery 1. This is the part everyone remembers. Yeah, this is what I knew coming in. How? I can't do that, Dave. I mean, Daisy Daisy even. I knew all of this coming in. I thought that was the entire movie. I was happy to get here. And on two watchings, this third act, and I I break it into four, this third act is my favorite act. It's the one with the strongest narrative. It's a complete three-act story in what? 40 minutes? It's the one that doesn't quite fit in with all the others. It's almost a digression. It's an interlude in between the real movie, which is not to say I dislike it or that I would want it gone, just that because it becomes about how, we forget about the monolith. It's the only segment that doesn't have a monolith in it. And the monolith, to me, is the star. And yet I feel thematically it does work. I mean, we're going to talk about it. I do want to say I do love that we just jump 18 months into the future to Discovery 1. If you've seen Contact, it feels like so much of that film is like, hey, we found alien life and now we're going to spend the next hour 
constructing machine to go visit it and then blow it up and then construct another one. Here, no, we don't care about the construction of Discovery 1. Boom, we have it. And Arnie, you've been talking about Star Trek. Come on, here's Star Wars. Here's the Star Destroyer coming up on screen with that long pan. Exactly what's done here with Discovery 1. Yeah, Lucas did it in a more exciting, less voyeuristic way, but yes, yes. Yes, there's explosions in it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to compare it to Star Wars, it would be a fallacy. Star Wars was inspired by the technical design. They did not want to mimic the style or the mood. I mean, it's a, a very different piece. But yeah, there's no doubt about it. Again, just from a design standpoint, this movie is unparalleled. I mean, this ship, the reason why it's long, the reason why there's a circle and a length, because technicians sat around and said, how can we send men in the space when the boosters are nuclear and it would radiate them. We'd have to create a ship long enough that they would be protected from that radiation. I mean, this is the kind of thing these people are thinking about. It's amazing. It's funny because I saw it more symbolically and I'm not trying to be crude or funny here. I did wonder, is this semen? Is this taking man into the future? Like, that's how I saw this thing. It almost looks like a very stiff piece of sperm with a tail that doesn't wiggle around. But yeah, that big bulbous head and that long tail. I, I, I read it more metaphorically. And I didn't see it this way, but the second time I watched this, I watched this with my wife Marjorie and she saw this as a giant penis and in Act 4, she saw it going into a giant vagina, a very neon vagina. Sure. I mean, Freudians will enjoy this movie for sure. There is a, an easy Freudian read to this. Maybe not so much as Alien, but it's there if you want it. But again, these technical designs were not made by people thinking what would look cool, what fits our metaphor. These are people that are thinking, how do we get these people safely to Jupiter? But with the design, I mean, to mention Star Wars again, obviously Star Wars did kind of look at the front of this for the inspiration of the Death Star, right? I mean, it's got three little domes on the front, whereas the Death Star had one. But when I saw this, I knew this ship before. I'd seen little models of it, but until I saw it on the screen, I didn't realize the front is basically the Death Star. And then we're introduced to another scene in the rotating room where we meet Frank doing his exercises. And we saw the rotating room earlier with the stewardess and her hair helmet. And I was kind of whatever. But in all the car ads and movies I've seen the rotating room in, I've never seen a camera angle like this one used. Just this askew, like, it's not trying to create an effect, it's trying to just stay put and show you height and angle and the fact that the room appears circular. In the 45 years since this movie, I don't think anybody's ever replicated that shot. And I said it in The Shining. I think Kubrick is a great cinematographer, and there it is. It is like a shining shot, where he actually follows the guy running, where they build a groove into the middle of it, and the camera's staying with him. They're keeping pace behind him as he runs. But yeah, all of this stuff, it's amazing. But again, it enhances this theme of stagnation. I mean, running on a treadmill, like running in a circle, it says these guys have nothing to do, and they have no personality whatsoever. The one with the personality is the computer. Arguably the most identifiable, easy to a root for character is the villain. It's HAL 9000. Easy to root for? Really? I think that his neurosis makes sense. He's the one being like, guys, have you heard the rumors? I mean, first of all, he's telling rumors. <laughs> he <laughs> knows. He knows what's going on. He's like, I think I heard that there were some aliens or something. And it's very relatable to me. I'm not saying that I justify his murders, but I understand this guy when I look at these human beings 
things, I don't get them. I will say this, when, when you get to the demise of the HAL 9000, that is when I feel emotion for a character in this film. That's where, like, as he is dying, yes, I do feel like that is the character that I know the most about and I have the most feeling for as he is going down. You know, when Frank gets launched into space, okay. You know, when these sleeping scientists die, whatever. Even with Dave, uh, you know, he's the human we probably get to know the most. It is this computer that is the character that I latch onto the most in this film. And again, what I love about this is the resistance to anthropomorphize him. It would have been very easy to make him a robot, right? It would have been very easy. They were talking about the original design being he was like a moon rover and he was rolling around and, you know, like short circuit Johnny Five kind of crap. Thank God they resisted those urges to make them more like humans. It's more like the monolith. In fact, Hal's red eye, it's in a big black rectangle. It does incorporate some of those geometric ideas that we first saw with the monolith. And of course the influence of the red eye cannot be overstated. I mean, you look at Battlestar Galactica or even Knight Rider, they always cut to these red lights and the voices. I think that this is something that is pervasive in today's culture all started right here. Yeah, I think there is something subconscious about seeing that rectangular monolith and then having that red eye stuck into a rectangle. Like, we, we've all talked about that. There's the creepy music. We don't trust the monolith. We know it's helping, maybe. We don't really know what's going on, and we get that same vibe with Hal. And I'm completely spoiled going in, so I know everything Hal's going to do, so I I don't trust him from the beginning. But I again want to say that a lot of the way they introduce Hal, Hal has like eight televisions around him. I dare not call them monitors from the 60s, but televisions all with different displays, and the graphics on them, they still look better than even the stuff in Star Wars did, and it holds up, and I think that it might have been a very unusual way to convey information to audiences back then to have eight screens where you're really supposed to be looking at this one in the corner but there's still interesting stuff on the other seven and can i just say as a former paste eater i so wanted to eat this food i so (laughs) wanted i would have eaten my vegetables as a child if i could eat it as a makeup compact this is part of the fun for me it's just imagining what life would be like again so boring for them but for me what a vacation to be able to eat space food that looks like crayons or or something Uh, rouge i mean it does not look at all like food they cook it in a microwave but it's uh yeah it's its own thing at least you don't have to drink it because it doesn't float away yes Yes. i i like that they were watching ipads though yes (laughs) i did notice that i'm like oh technology's advanced they weren't skyping on the moon but here they got ipads to watch the news So you knew Hal was going to kill him. I think that is a spoiled surprise. I think you're right. Most people that would come to this movie would have that already spoiled. But the question remains, and it remains for me after watching this dozens of times, why does Hal lose it? Yeah, I'm curious about a lot of this. I mean, I'm influenced by the movies I've seen that Hal has influenced. You mentioned Alien already, and I can't help but think of Mother a lot when watching this. And Ash, but yeah. Well, Ash was kind of the avatar for Mother in many ways, but they were both there to serve the mission in Alien. Who cares about the people? The mission is too important. Obviously, now that I see this was lifted directly from this movie. But the question I can't can't decide. Having watched it twice, you guys have seen it far more. Maybe you can give me your interpretation. But did Hal screw up and say there was a malfunction on this module? And because of him screwing up, when he hears the other two saying we should turn him off, he then decides to kill them for self-preservation? Or 
Did he not screw up and it started off as a ruse all along and his self-awareness? I mean, there's all this exposition in the news interview that's, I'm sure, there to introduce audiences who may not have ever heard of a computer to what Hal is. And it talks about him being self-aware and does he really feel, is he really feeling homicidal and like a poorly programmed Asmovian robot just deciding... To kill for pleasure. You know, the way I've always taken it, I, I, I see how somewhat childlike, and that's going to become literal towards the end. But right before he announces that this sensor has gone out on the satellite, he has this conversation with Dave, and they're, it's, it's this existential conversation, you know, do, do you have real emotions? I, I can't say. Like, it almost feels like him trying to understand himself is what causes him to become human and make this mistake. I've always read it as, He's made a mistake, and now he's trying to cover it up. Again, it's almost childlike. It's You create an even bigger sin to cover up a little white lie. You know, as you mature, hopefully you don't do that. But as a child, you know, you you, you spill the milk, and you, you create big, long stories about some troll that came in and actually did it. You know, that's how I've read Hal, is almost childlike. And he made a mistake, and he didn't want to admit failure. He pushed it even further to where he's going to kill everyone on the ship. And that makes him human. It was what I got out of the first segment, and it's what I get out of here. The desire to kill is a natural result of consciousness. He is becoming more human. And just as the apes were becoming more human. And what did they do? They picked up a bone and killed their enemies. And I think that's what Hal did when he realized that there was a threat on him. He realized he could die. He could be turned off for his mistake. He was not going to let that happen. We'll get definitive answers next week. And I will just go ahead and spoil it. They're not my personal interpretation of why he did it. But I think that we don't have to follow what Arthur C. Clarke wanted us to think about why Hal did it. It's open for interpretation, and that's mine. I do like this escalation between Hal and the astronauts and the way he reads the lips. And just when I am really getting into the suspense of it, intermission? (laughs) (laughs) Again, common. Uh, It wouldn't seem necessary for a movie that's only two hours and 20. I mean, shit, Captain America was longer than that. (laughs) Yeah, I I did wonder if that was just something of the time or was there a stylistic choice, but I I guess it was just something of the time. Last time I think I saw an intermission, my dad drug me to Gettysburg, which is like four hours long. Oh, yeah, that had one. I saw that too in theaters. It had one. And I always associate it with Gandhi. Gandhi was the first film I saw in theaters that had an intermission. But I was A, surprised they put it in on the Blu-ray, but B, why put an intermission mid-act three? Why not put the intermission right after the screaming monolith separation between act two and act three? It's not even the midpoint of the movie. We're 90 minutes into the movie with one hour to go when the intermission comes. It's the biggest hook, though. What immediately precedes this is that Hal is becoming more and more paranoid. He's made a mistake. Mission Control is saying he's making a mistake. Dave and Frank have snuck off to a pod and said, he's made a mistake. Are we screwed or what? What are we going to do about it? And we see Hal spying on them, reading their lips. They think that he can't hear them and he knows that he's doomed. And so what's he going to do about it? I feel like this is the biggest point of drama, even though, as you said, it doesn't make sense. It isn't the end of this segment. It isn't even the middle of the movie. So they plan to kill Hal, but Hal kills Frank first. How? This is my second favorite cut in the movie. Obviously, the epic jump cut from bone to spaceship is the one that everyone knows. But yeah, there's something just kind of amazing. There's something that Kubrick does in this segment that just haunts me to the bone. He showed me that I had a phobia I did not know that I had. 
I don't know what it's called when you're afraid of the vacuum of space, but I'm terrified of it. I think it's called rational. Were you crying during gravity then? <laughs> I was. Gravity is like the fun roller coaster version of this. This is more like the slow, inescapable, claustrophobic version of that. It's the opposite of claustrophobia, but the weightlessness of this and the way that he just is just floating off, grabbing at air after his oxygen has been snipped. The pod turns on him. If you're wondering what happened, how took control of his pod and snipped it. They actually filmed that and they cut it. There are scenes that didn't make it into it and the visualization of the murder is one of them. I prefer to have it be a jump cut. I prefer to suddenly see Dave asleep at the monitor and his friend goes floating by and he's like, well, what? Yeah, I mean, it should be said, Frank's going back out to rehook the satellite up. And yeah, I always assume, you know, later on we'll see Dave using this technique where he uses the pod to blow himself back into the ship. I always wonder, is that what Hal did? Did he use that same technique to blow Frank out of the ship and into the vacuum of space? And what I love, we've talked so much about the music, is also the lack of sound. We talked about how Kubrick wanted to do hard sci-fi. There is something eerie about that. We don't, you know, if this was a, a big budget Hollywood, we always say Michael Bay, but you know, that kind of film, you know, where you'd have the Willem scream as Frank spins out of control into space. But no, it's that silence. But Jacob, in space, no one can hear you scream. And this is a film that actually sticks by that rule. That's what I love about it. Yeah, Gravity. Gravity wasn't the quietness. I mean, they had a clanging Oscar-winning score. They had sound effects galore. There was never this... I mean, here it's just the hiss of the oxygen and breathing, and then that just stops. And it's true. Sound does not travel well in space. It's kind of a vacuum, and so it is both a scientific representation of what it would be like to be in space, and it's spooky as hell. <laughs> see, and I honestly thought the reason we didn't see Frank's death is because it didn't look very good, and they were keeping the good effects. I figured there was a technological or financial limitation, and that's why it was off-screen. I didn't take it as they had it, they filmed it, and they chose artistically not to show it. I, I'm still questioning knowing what I know about Kubrick, if he was just such a perfectionist that he wasn't happy with how it may have looked. But don't you love the confusion that it creates? He knew how it was going to do something, but yeah, you're, like, all of a sudden this long ten-minute stretch of nothingness has turned into, like, grab the armrest what the hell just happened? You're into the movie more than you even thought you were after this point. Mm, no, that is not the effect it had on me. The effect it had on me was the exact opposite. I'm like, oh, that's how you're going to kill a character? Gripping the armrest? No, kind of crossing my arms. I think it's funny that Dave remains unemotive. I mean, this is his only friend on the ship besides Hal, and you know, he was the one that went out and got the piece in the first time. This could have been him, and yet this guy, not a bead of sweat off of him. Again, I say, Hal is more relatable than this cat. I guess he's upset enough to get into a pod without his helmet, but he... He really is a cool character. And I read his facial expression as he was stealing himself. Like, again, he's an astronaut. Astronauts are pilots, military men. I took it as he's only out there because he thinks he can save his friend's life. He's trying his damnedest to save his friend's life. There's that annoying sound coming from his ship, but <laughs> he's still going to try to save his friend because I took it as completely emotional. If he was unemotional, he'd be like, well, he's probably dead. No, he's going out there on the long shot that he might be alive. That's emotion to me. Yeah, to me, it's always been like, oh, crap, the 
all-knowing computer has turned against us. But he, yeah, he does have that military training. He can't show those emotions. He's got to try to stay calm. You're trained in that kind of situation. Maybe not for a computer to turn against you, but you're trained to respond emotionless and not panic. And so I do read something in his expression that he's trying to push down the the, the, the panic, the, the oh crap feeling that the computer's turned on us and trying to, what's the one task I could do? I could try to go get, I don't know if it's his friend, uh, but my co-pilot. And, and try to save him and bring him back to the ship. And I don't think he knows it's Hal, because if he knew it was Hal, I don't think he would have gone out so recklessly, no helmet and everything else. They were suspicious of Hal, though. That's why they went in the pot in the first place. So they even asked Hal if they could be heard. You guys keep mentioning military. This is not a military operation. This is These aren't Marines here. These aren't tough guys. These are astronauts. Astronauts usually have some kind of military training. They, they come from the Air Force. So that's why I'm assuming there's some kind of military training. They look and act like every other human being in this movie. We were on a military base, though, so maybe that's why. Yeah, I don't see your blue-class people up in space. This is military. Even in 2001, Pan Am may be up there, but it's like flying the Concorde. Your ordinary people can't do it. I take all these people as military. This is a government operation. This is not alien. These are not your civil servants who are going out there on the behalf of a shop or an organization. These guys are sent by the American government to investigate a signal. I don't know. I think it's important for me in the reading of the movie to understand that this is what technology has done to us, that this is what we become. When you have these moments of them reconnecting with family and, you know, guy calling his daughter or Frank getting his parents to contact him, the disconnection between them, it's very sad. Again, I think it's intentional that all of these actors are are not stars and are giving these same kind of stoic performances. Very, very low-key. It's part of the design of the picture to be cool and geometric and not to get your blood boiling. They don't want you to experience gravity here. You know, and maybe that's why, because everything is so stoic, the real moment of, I guess, scariness, of fear, Dave, he goes out, he takes the pod, he, he saves Frank, he's bringing him back, and there's that moment where he's like, Al, open the pod bay doors nothing says it again he's like arguing but there's no answer you know there's that when you get the silent treatment there's nothing worse than that because you can't (laughs) convince the person and and he finally just breaks he's like how how you know it just tapers off and there is something scary about that moment there is now mutiny afoot i did wonder how he was going to get in especially when hal points out he has no helmet as like i wondered how they'd gonna go and yeah you mentioned gravity they kind of go with that same solution although they didn't have the technical computer savvy to do it the way that would have protected Kier delay i mean poor Kier delay was basically <laughs> upside down on a bungee cord and had to fall hoping that it didn't stretch and that he hit his face on the camera below <laughs> again no computers no trickery now i like many people was operating under the myth that if you went out into space the pressurization difference would cause your head to explode you mean for Hoven's total recall isn't true? Yeah, or, or there was a lot of them. I mean, I just feel like uh, I've seen that in a lot of sci-fi, but Arthur C. Clarke is a scientist. I know he knows more about science than I do. I don't know how he knows this, but he claims that you do have a couple of seconds that you would just experience extreme cold before you would, you know, I don't know, lapse into a hypothermic coma or something like that, but that this would be the way that it is. I, I won't dispute it, although I always thought that this was a fanciful, impossible way of getting him out of this situation as a child. Though I, I have read the, the one mistake they do make is that Dave 
holds his breath. And in this situation, if you're ever stuck in a pod and you got to get into your space station, you want to blow all the air out of your lungs before you try this, not hold it in because it will like rupture your lungs. According to what they say, even today at NASA, I did look that up because I'm a plot hole person. You got about 30 seconds. So does that help your phobia, Stuart? No, it really doesn't. 30 <laughs> seconds is a long time to be afraid. But I want to just point out, Clark had a different idea anyway. This is one place where he and Kubrick didn't see eye to eye. He didn't feel like Dave would have gone out to get the body. He had a standoff with Hal inside the ship. It plays very differently. You can hear my thoughts on that over at Books and Nachos. So here's my question. So once Dave gets back inside the ship, he puts a helmet on and there is a hissing. Is Hal, like, is he releasing CO2 into the air, trying to poison Dave, making it so he can't breathe. Why does he put a helmet on? And what do you guys read something into that? Oh, okay. Well, I'll tell it now. <laughs> Why wait for books and nachos? In the book, he blows all the air out of the ship. If you want to kill everyone there, why not do it? Hal doesn't need to breathe. Humans do. That hissing is the oxygen in his suit. He has a helmet on because he wouldn't be able to breathe with it off. And I didn't know if Hal had ejected the oxygen or if Dave was just taking every precaution against what Hal could do to him, be it eject the oxygen or kick him back into space somehow. Believe me, if I'd just come through that vacuum, I don't think I'd take the helmet off until I was back on Earth. And I love that it's mismatched. It shows you his mental state. Kubrick is very good about that throughout this movie, using color to speak for characters when they have no words for themselves. That it's a green helmet on a red suit. It says everything about how he's become unhinged, and as he's storming in there, very methodically, not going to lose it. I think this is the one moment when Kier DeLay gets to show just a little bit of tremble in his lip but up to this point i really feel like he is a cool cucumber we never get to know him the helmet tells you how unnerved he is yeah how offers him a stress pill and it tells him to think <laughs> things over he doesn't need to you know what this is again speaking about how being the character I, I think you could grasp onto the most this whole scene you know first we saw dave pleading with Hal and how giving him the silent treatment now it's reversed and listening to how like plead for it's life. To me, it's moving. It's it's sad. It's like, okay, he's murdering people. But there is something so childlike. Stop. Stop, will you? Stop, Dave. Will you stop? Like, there is something heartbreaking as how devolves back into uh, a less thinking computer. Yeah, I felt a little bad for Hal. I think I credit the voice actor and the voice that was chosen for this for being... Even at the most evil, it's always just the same tone of voice, the same delivery. And when he's about to be turned off, it makes me feel like somebody being euthanized and not wanting to die. I do feel a little bad for him, but by the same token, I view him as the villain. I don't view him as a child. And so I certainly think I'd be doing exactly what Dave does. I might even just be doing it with an axe instead of <laughs> ejecting the tapes. I think you want to keep some of the functions there. He does control the entire ship, from my understanding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Poor Dave. I mean, even though he's won this chess match, as it were, now what is he going to do? Okay, he's shut the computer down. He can take some manual control, but they're basically screwed. The mission is over. They're so reliant on the technology, there's no mission without it. I mean, it's 
doomed. I got to ask you, Stuart, because this is one of your big theories I've seen throughout multiple retrospectives. Western society distrusts computers. They hate computers. You know, I've seen Metropolis. There, There's the evil, sexy female robot that deceives man. I, I don't know how much of an influence that had. Is this the origins of the evil computer that's going to destroy us all? Is there a Terminator without Hal? I think you're right. I mean, Metropolis did it first, and Kubrick did admit that was his one begrudging. Well, I did kind of like that one, uh, as far as early sci-fi movies. But yeah, for modern science fiction, this is where it all stems from. This is where your Terminator, this is all of it. Yeah, exactly. Mother on Alien. At a time where we're marveling at all the new technology, it really did send up a warning and a red flag that it will ultimately be to our peril. And that's Kubrick's bias. I mean, he fully admitted that. For him, it was important to put in the story that technology and computers will fail us. And because of that, yeah, I think maybe the whole West has a phobia about robots now. Though that may be changing. I mean, if you saw the movie Moon, they have, it's obviously a HAL counterpart in that film, and it's benevolent. But the expectation is that you're waiting for it to turn on Sam Rockwell at any moment, and it never does. But that's all because of this film, that you have that expectation. Yeah, it's it, there's no way to not think that. It's the voice as much as anything. It's not just that Hal was controlled everything, but he had that annoying, like, oh, you know, it, it's like uh, the soothing that isn't really soothing kind of voice, like airport terminal kind of voice. <laughs> it was trying too hard, and, and you just knew something was wrong. I guess that's what it is. There's still too much artificiality in artificial intelligence. Or maybe he's just too human and thus why you can't rely on him. Maybe he's a killer because he's human and not because he's a robot. I guess that goes back to the apes. The first time the ape evolved, he killed. So I think you are on to that, Stuart, and I hadn't thought about it till you said it. I like the fact that Hal sings Daisy when he dies. I was a computer science student at the University of Illinois, not very far from where Hal was born, and so I know that the first song they ever had a computer sing was Daisy. It didn't sound as good, though. This segment kind of harkens back to the, the one previous one that we all, well, Arnie and I thought was kind of boring. You know, we do find out that not even Dave and Frank knew what they were doing. This was a secret mission, and that these scientists were woken up once they arrived at the monolith at Jupiter. Well, you know, originally they were supposed to go a little bit further. The whole idea was that Jupiter was a way station and that the movie would conclude in its fourth part with Saturn. They really wanted to get to those rings, but I guess that was where the technology failed. If you read the book, they get to Saturn. If you see the movie, well, it's Jupiter and then the infinity. Yeah, it's they couldn't quite get to where they wanted to. But yeah, Douglas Trumbull, the special effects artist for this, would repurpose all the work he did for Saturn in his own movie, Silent Running. And we get the monolith again. Lest you forget, the star of the movie, Spinning in Space, is a question for you. The same monolith, a new monolith, what are they looking at now? Is this one bigger? It's hard to get a sense of scale, but I thought this one was bigger. I think, doesn't Dave go into the monolith? Yeah, but how do you go into a monolith, whether it's 10 miles long or 8 feet long? It, it seems like some magic or space alien uh, wizardry would be involved either way. What I really like about this monolith is how it's almost invisible in the darkness of space as it kind of floats around. It, it's, it's Again, it's that spookiness, that airiness, that is it really there? Does this really exist? It Just because it gets, gets some of the, I guess, light? I, I don't know. I don't think Jupiter gives off light. So the light of the stars or whatever that you're able to see it. Yeah, I, we'll get, again, definitive answers. That's what they're good at next time. 2010 will definitely tell us what this is, and I'll go ahead and spoil it. It is the big brother of the one that they found on the moon. It is not the same one. But I always assumed it was the same one. Again, I always saw this 
as a deity that was sort of just following and seeing if can you get to the next level and if you do you'll be rewarded by offering a new level and i saw them as like road signs and th that's why i thought this one was bigger i never thought it was the same one i figured the one on the moon was still on the moon or it's in that warehouse from raiders of the lost ark that's actually it is where it is uh, yeah we'll get there you guys are getting ahead but let's finish up here well, whatever it is it takes him to a place that well i mean i guess if this movement is about is anything it's it's about what lays beyond our technology, what we cannot even conceive. To paraphrase Arthur C. Clarke, out of the realm of science, we're moving into a realm of spirituality. Ah, uh, no, 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 no. We're moving into a realm of drug addiction. Yeah, nine minutes of messing with the color bars on your TV. I am gainfully employed at a place that does drug testing, so I was not <laughs> able to test a theory. Oh, I've heard stories. I know where your theory's going. My theory is, if you drop a tab of acid during the overture, does it kick in? in during this section here it probably depends if it's the brown acid or, or better acid. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I've heard stories. My dad has told me stories. Not that he dropped acid during the movie, but he's like, that's why this film got a cult following. It was hippies dropping acid for this final act. That's actually what I read on IMDb as well, is that people walked out of this movie, said that it was incomprehensible, and it was being deemed a failure, and it was being pulled from theaters until theater owners said, wait, no, the drugged out hippies are loving it. That's true. That is actually what turned the tied here. I mean, this movie was not necessarily warmly received, but I'll just put it this way. Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke are not hippies. Kubrick, when he is making this movie, is, you know, somewhere between 35 and 40 years old. Arthur C. Clarke, he's almost 50 years old. They are not flower children by any means. And Kubrick says, I've never taken acid. I don't think you need to be a drug addict to appreciate the trip that it takes you on. But it helps. I like psychedelia and I don't drop acid. I like being taken beyond my realm of consciousness. And this in sequence largely is very successful and making me feel like I've transported to another dimension. Is that dimension Michael Jackson's Rock With You video? Rock With You? I have no idea. Isn't that where the laser light show was? Oh, come now. If you're going to make a comparison to that cheesy old thing, come on. <laughs> Stuart, I, I do agree. I, I've never watched this film while on acid. I've never been on acid, so I can't speak to that, but I remember the first time I watched this film, I'm like, oh yeah, this is kind of like a weird you know, sci-fi film that keeps jumping, and then I got to this. I'm like, whoa, what? This is weird now. This this is what people are talking about when they say they can't understand this film. Like, this is the weird part. And it's one of those moments I actually, again, so much of this film, and I said this with The Shining, it, there's maybe because it's of Kubrick's, because he's such a great cinematographer, that there is something hypnotic. He, he really does pick frames that capture your eye. And yeah, this moment, like, what is going on? You get these freeze frames of Dave and like just these horrific facial expressions that he's like being contorted through this Stargate here. There's I, I don't think you need to be on drugs to enjoy this. I definitely think this may be a cool scene to watch if I ever decide to do acid, though. And please, Robert Wise, stop this. This is exactly Spock going into V'ger, including the reflections on the helmet. I am so pissed off that I have never liked Star Trek The Motion Picture, and now I like it even less for seeing how obviously it's ripping this off. And I want to point out a lot of these techniques are from experimental films. Again, no computers. They had to figure out practical ways of showing you this stuff. Now, some of it's obvious. We all know and, and can do it on our phones how to make a negative image. That's less impressive here. But some of this stuff is remarkable. I mean, they're microscopic drops of paint and water and, and, and in various ways. They Actually, those diamonds at one point, you see sparking diamonds. They actually built those. They actually projected on all four sides. They really came up with some very intricate 
amazing, innovative ways to recreate, yeah, I guess, acid imagery. Well, this is the scene I was thinking of when I said, watch this on the Blu-ray. Because I'm watching this at my home theater, blown up 110 inches. I wish I had your experience for this scene. Whether I recommend this movie or not, I want to see this bigger. I want to see this post-conversion 3D IMAX. I mean, I really think this is a great visual. I can't imagine it even looked as good in 1968 as it does on this Blu-ray. There had to be more grain, scratches on the negative, fingerprints on the negative. Seeing it in the crisp, digital, cleaned-up image, this is so gorgeous, so vibrant. It definitely is a awesome tech demo if you want to see the ranges of your projection TV or projector for color. I mean, it's good in that way. This is also where my wife saw the vagina and the sperm. She saw the two sides of the multicolored, which at times was pinkish vortex that Dave was traveling into or penetrating as the vagina. And then in the bottom right corner, there is a big white globbly thing with a tail. Yeah, there's lots of fluids mixing around at some point in this whole sequence. Yeah, I always saw this not as a sexual moment, but more, I mean, obviously you can read that there, but to me it felt like he was returning to, like, Big Bang kind of stuff. Like, you know, the world expanded and, and everything that he knew was in that expansion and now it was retracting. I mean, there's even this kind of like cool effect where like the stars are kind of warping, you know what I mean? And he's like kind of going in and it's a push and pull kind of Hitchcock move as he's going in there. I, I don't know. I saw this as him being shown everything that he had missed, everything that had been in the past history, the whole history of the universe being shown to him as he's going through. Yeah, as much as there's a theme about evolution, there, there's also de-evolution going on here. We see how revert back to a child. We see, yeah, we start off with these very geometric-shaped colors in the Stargate, and, and then it goes into landscapes. It's like watching the creation and watching evolution reverse to where we're in the primordial goo and fluids just kind of floating around in space. No cyber sex, though. No, it's no cyber sex, thankfully. I do think my wife was right. I think this is a metaphor for sex. I mean, the whole thing ends with a baby. Oh, yeah. I, I think there's definitely that metaphor here. It, it's almost too easy because it does end with a baby. Yeah, I didn't even think about it. Again, only seen it twice. She saw it once, went, is this a penis going into a laser vagina? And I'm like, well, the movie does end with a fetus. So I guess so. But before he gets to the fetus, we get to perhaps the strangest part of a very strange movie, where he arrives, the way station, the, the <laughs> hotel room, as it were. Is this the Hojo? The Black Lodge? For <laughs> <laughs> Twin Peaks fans, you know what I'm talking about with the Black Lodge, because I was taken right to Twin Peaks with the way this goes and the really bad old age makeup. Yeah, this came out of Clark's suggestion. He actually said he wanted it to be like a gay bar. I mean, that he was like, it would be really funny if it was overly ostentatious and ornamental, and he's it as a waiting room. You see, this is a gay bar. I was thinking like leather and collars. Something like that. <laughs> this is not a gay bar. Well, Clark is gay, so he, he got to know. But true, true. 1960s gay bar. <laughs> yeah. But he really saw this as trying to ease Dave into whatever was going to happen next. That it was an optical illusion. And that the reason why it's so strange is that it, it's not quite real, but it was meant to simulate his reality so that he wouldn't get too weirded out, that he would be able to have a normal existence, get some rest, eat a meal, take a shit. <laughs> Despite it looking like a French hotel, that is actually how I interpreted it, was the aliens are trying to give him something 
familiar. Yeah, I always felt it was almost like a zoo and they were observing him. Is he ready to evolve? You know, they they found the ape men worthy of evolving and so they gave him a monolith. And, you know, here we, we get these very alien noises and I always wondered, is that supposed to be the aliens discussing what's going on? Is, is he ready for that next step? I mean, I do love the artistry. I Do I understand this moment? I understand, I think, the big picture where this is going, why it was shot this way. I don't know if I completely get it, but I do love these. You hear a noise and Dave turns around and he, and he sees an older version of himself and then he's eating and then he drops a glass and sees himself in the bed it's very artistic i think i know what's going on at least a big picture i don't know all the minute details but i do feel like he's yeah is he in a waiting room is he in a human zoo are aliens watching him that's always the impression i got and that freaked me out the first time because i thought he saw somebody else and the makeup changes his appearance to such a degree, it took me a moment to realize, okay, it's him, but now he's older, and that he keeps seeing himself from the outside, but then transforming into the being he's seeing. I mean, it's really kind of weird. Yeah, I almost wonder if he's become separated from time, and, and this is how they're depicting how he's seeing himself through all ages, you know? He's seeing himself as the astronaut, as the old man, as the sick man in the bed, and this is just how they decided to shoot that. Because he obviously He's entered some kind of other dimension. Does time even exist in this dimension? Yeah, I'm seeing this as an extension of what technology was doing to people even before. Before they were distant from each other, from their families, and now he's even an abstraction to himself. That he is turning into something else. He's essentially dying off, but doesn't even realizing it. He's experiencing it as a series of, of moments. It's got a real shining quality. I gotta say, most Kubrick films stand on their own, and I don't see other Kubrick films in them. They're their own thing, but this moment... He here, I feel like he might have checked into the Overlook Hotel. <laughs> you know, and I've always saw this, he's going to become the star child, this giant fetus in space, and that is him becoming God, and so much of this story, to me, is how have we gone from ape to God, and what is a science fiction version of that, and so here's these weird other dimensional aliens that are guiding us and leading us, and it's not us choosing that path, but someone has found us worthy or interesting enough to watch to see if we can achieve that. And this is good to hear from people who have seen this movie dozens of times. Watching it the first time, I'm like... And we'll get to an explanation. And even watching it the second time, I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll just kind of go with it because it's what it is. I can hypothesize. I prefer, though, to know the artist's intent. I prefer to do the research, read the novelization, listen to the commentaries to find out what the artist was thinking versus make shit up, which is what I consider most deconstructionism. So, no, I, I disagree. I think it's about bringing your experience in and, and creating a discussion. I always think that's what good art does. It creates discussions. And But I get what you're saying, Arnie. The first time I saw this, I immediately went and read the book because I wanted to know why is there a baby in space? And you get an answer. I mean, there is more of a definitive answer. That baby does something. Is it a giant baby or is it perspective. I couldn't tell if we were like the baby was close to the camera and Earth was far from the camera, or if the baby was like Galactus baby about to eat the Earth. <laughs> it's a giant baby. He's not about to eat the Earth, but if you read the Arthur C. Clarke vision, he does decide to help us out by taking out all those nuclear satellites. I don't know that Kubrick ever wanted to film that. That would have been a return for that jump cut bone into a nuclear satellite. They all went poof at the emergency 
emergence of the space baby. Much like the ape destroying the bones, that's what the baby does here. It's the next step of evolution. We've made the same kind of jump we did a million years ago with this star child. It's what we will become. That's the way I take it. But as a child, this was run out of the room and cover your eyes. I couldn't even look at this thing. This is. I think I had just heard about babies and like I didn't want to think about fetuses. This was the most terrifying thing in a very alarming film. Now, I don't know. I don't think I can watch this ending without crying. I'm always moved to tears when we get to this end with the return of the Strauss score and all of that. It's just mind blown. Mission accomplished. I like the music. I think the baby looks kind of weird. I'm hoping it's alien because otherwise it's got a deformed eye. I'm not crying. I'm not moved. I'm confused. I'm hoping that the sequel explains something. I'm glad I know that there is a sequel. Well, you weren't the only one confused. This movie, like we said, if it weren't for the hippies, it would have been considered a costly bomb. MGM hated it. They only put it out in one theater. The early critics were befuddled by it. It truly, I think, if it had not been the summer after the summer of love, I don't know that it would have been discovered. But yeah, it became the thing to do for the hippie generation to yeah, go smoke a joint and go check out 2001. John Lennon had standing tickets in the Manhattan Theater. Every performance for a year, no matter what the showtime, he could have walked up at any time and walked in and seen the show. And he was a huge influence on the youth culture movement. This was a generational statement, and I think his endorsement helped that. Are you kidding me? Movies ran for a year? No, it ran actually <laughs> four years. This thing did not pull out of theaters until 1972, and when it did, it had made $30 million which is a triple its investment. Wow, I can't imagine that kind of a world. I remember when movies lasted like six months in the theaters, and that's unheard of now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the movie lasted four years in theaters. Obviously, I know the answer, but let's go through the formalities. (laughs) Jacob Stewart, tell them why you recommend 2001, and then I'll tell them if I recommend 2001. Jacob. You know, I I think I've misled everyone. I said this is probably my favorite movie. I'm going to take that back. I don't know if this is my favorite movie because I don't see this as strictly a movie. I I said it during this review. It's a symphony. It's a ballet. It's film. There is so much going on. This is truly an experience for me. This is a, a piece of art that transcends just the art of film. It really is a masterpiece to me. It is, Stuart, you said you cry at the ending. There is so much emotion going on. We talked about, it's not because of these characters. It's not because of their story. It's, I really do think this is tapping into something in our brain, primordial into us. And that's why I come and gravitate this to this film. The wonder of space and watching ships and people float around and walk upside down. And then this tragic story. I I see how is a a tragedy, you know, where he's reverting to a child and and slowly being murdered. There's... uh, something so sad about that and then this hope this moving on overcoming all our warlike tendencies and you know i don't think unlike the book that this is a big hippie message where like let's blow up all the nuclear weapons and give peace a chance but i do feel like that is a theme that that there's something underlying that can we use technology to move past ourselves and move past the anger and the violence and the hatred there's so much going on in this film and there it's a great discussion piece it's more than a film to me though it, it really is so much of an experience that a powerful experience that has to be given a chance. I, I get why people would not like this. I totally understand that, and I but I think you have to give it a chance. So it is the highest of recommends for me. Stuart. Yeah, the experience is unparalleled. I can't think of all the movies that I've watched ever having an emotional response the way that I do this movie. It's often imitated, never duplicated. It is a monolith. It towers over 
most of the other science fiction films, including ones I really like, like Alien. I mean, it is a strange, cold figure that makes everyone else look like they're apes playing in the bones. I mean, it just, it is mind-blowing, and I worship it. I experience it as a religious experience, quite honestly. No exaggeration. It's rhapsodic to me. But, and I want to put this out there, I don't think you have to worship this movie to appreciate it. This recommend is not because it touched me personally. This recommend is because I just want to say I think it's important that people step outside themselves. And this movie is a conduit to seeing a wider universe. I mean, I really do think it really demands that you come to it, that it's not going to coddle you with entertainment. It is not entertainment. You talk, Jacob, about it not being like other movies. Most movies are worried about how you feel. Have I entertained you? Did you enjoy it? This movie is not going to do that. And not all movies need to do that. This movie is good enough that you should go to it, that you should do the work. And if you don't do it for Kubrick, if you don't like his cynicism, if you think he's self-important, that's fine. But do it for something. I think it's important to see movies as more than mere entertainment. And for me, this is the pinnacle of movies as art. But I like movies as entertainment. So, so do I, Arnie. That's why I started Now Playing, is to be a podcast not for film snobs, but for movie lovers. Like, TBS had this block, movies for guys who like movies. And while, you know, I'm not all about Arnold Schwarzenegger action and all the TNA you can shove in, that's kind of why I started Now Playing, was to be a counterpoint to what I felt were the erudite critics out there who exist to suck the cocks of filmmakers who make incomprehensible oblique films because they are so far up their own assholes that all they breathe is farts. I sense a recommend coming. (laughs) I mean, I wanted to bring in every man's sensibility to now playing, and so I look at this first and foremost as a movie. And 2001 doesn't work as a movie. It doesn't work on a narrative level other than the third act with Dave versus Hal, which is superb. So I can't recommend this as a movie. But yet, since the first time I watched it, I've been on the fence on if I give this the green arrow or the red arrow. Because if I give this a green arrow, I have to change my criteria and do what you said. I have to rate this film like I would a painting or a sculpture or a mime. Right. Yeah, you do. It's art, but it's it's not entertainment. And here at Now Playing, we review entertainment because I think that's what the majority of theater goers in America today like is to be entertained. The films that aren't entertaining don't hit the huge cultural mass. But then there's another aspect with 2001. I mean, I'm scared to give it a red arrow. I mean, God knows there are enough people in our audience who I've likely offended with my recent description of the stereotypical art house film. And if I don't recommend this film, I mean, all three of us get the emails. You've recommended this, but you don't recommend that. I mean, Stuart, Amazing Spider-Man 2? Yay! Spider-Man 2? Nay! Jacob, Batman and Robin! Coming back to bite me. (laughs) (laughs) Look, Arnie, nobody on this podcast, at least. I can't speak for our viewers. They're mostly very nice folks. I can't imagine anybody would resent you speaking from the heart. But I am hoping you give it a green. I can't lie. It would be nice. I mean, all of us recommended Catwoman. And people love to throw that in our faces. And I live with the red arrow I gave to Batman Begins. So could I take the backlash of taking this? I mean, this would be like giving a red arrow to Citizen Kane for sci-fi fans. I mean, Jacob said this was his favorite film of all time, although he's 
backed off that statement a little bit, but I certainly see this influence there. The question is, do I chalk this up as sci-fi homework? We've done a lot of horror homework that I've happily given a red arrow to because I certainly see the influences of 2001 on films that I don't just like, I love. Without 2001, there'd be no Star Wars, and I'd have no tattoos. Without 2001, there'd be no Alien, and I wouldn't have had the great video games and experiences with those movies. 2001 created the entertainment I enjoy. So it is there as that homework. But the recommend. This recommend is as drawn out as a Kubrick film. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I gotta say, if I judge this as I would Cirque du Soleil, I mean... (laughs) The narrative isn't there, but it is beautiful. And the score, I mean, God, I love this score. I mentioned I grew up listening to classical music, so this is taking me back to music that I haven't heard in a long time, but it's music I really, I don't cry, I don't well up, but the way music moves me, I get into this music. And Kubrick, I've said this in The Shining, I think the man is a genius cinematographer writer director i was not gonna use the g word there but man he had an eye for where the camera should go and what the frame should look like and so you've got great music with great visuals so now i have to evaluate this like a two and a half hour music video (laughs) and it's one that i love watching so do i recommend 2001 yes Gonna give it the green arrow. You're not just doing this out of guilt, are you? I'm not. Yeah. I'm not just doing this out of guilt because I can't recommend this as a movie, but it truly is in the Blu-ray edition. And I don't know what tinkering went on to cleanse it up for digital, but it's one of the most gorgeous pieces of film I've ever beheld. I could watch the film on silent and pick my own classical music to go with it. I'd have almost the same feeling, but this movie took me on a trip. And when Dave went into wherever he went, I thought he went into the monolith, but wherever he went, I felt like I was going with him in a way that few films make me feel. And this isn't a guilted thing. This isn't the first time I've recommended a film like this. I recommended Tron Legacy for the same reasons. (laughs) Wrong answer. The fact that you struggle with this and not Tron legacy is is somewhat disturbing but it's the same thing for me here it's strauss there it's daft punk in both cases it's really awesome visuals and that's what made me give tron a green arrow despite a nonsensical storyline and so 2001 is going to sit right there with it it's a absolutely gorgeous film for those willing to stop thinking about story and start thinking about meaning and notice i don't say turn your brain off i've come to hate the phrase turn your brain off entertainment i never think you should turn your brain off but it does become a movie i enjoy for this conversation that the three of us have about meaning more than any discussion we could have about plot And, I mean, there are other filmmakers like this who I like, and I don't want to be one of those critics who crawls up my own ass and smells my own farts, but I like some films for that trippy journey they can take me on. I I thought of David Lynch when they got to the weird alien place with the body jumping, and that's how I'd equate this, too. There's several David Lynch movies I couldn't recommend narratively, but would recommend. So... If you want a great movie about aliens and rogue computers and space flights, well, we've reviewed a dozen on Now Playing that are more exciting and more fulfilling in that regard. But I can't think of a single movie we've ever reviewed that looked better. So for all the CGI in Silicon Valley, Kubrick holds it. So yeah, 
I'm giving a green arrow to 2001, and that's two green arrows I've given Kubrick. But if we ever meet again on Now Playing... Yeah, you said you didn't like most of his films. <laughs> What's going on? His streak may not hold if we get to a third one. Boy, that was... I mean, I am sweating it. That was the most strenuous get-to-the-finish-line recommend I've ever seen you do. There was some more hemming and hawing than I, I've ever heard in my life. But I think you made the correct choice for the reasons that you stated here there at the end. The movie is a visual marvel and how you feel about it and what it means to you will be fluid. It will come and go. I think over time you will experience it in different ways, but it's always worth an experience. I mean, it's it's hard for me to imagine someone saying you don't want to waste your time on something like this. No, and it comes down to when I watched it the second time, I said, Marjorie, you should watch this movie. What's it about? That doesn't matter. You need to see this movie. Don't think about what it's about. And then a half hour in, she's like, I don't get what's going on. Don't worry about it. And if you just can't shake that, if you've got to know real hard, concrete answers, don't give up. You may hate 2001, but you may love 2010. It's all going to shift next time. And all the problems, quote unquote, that you have, they're going to go away. I can assure you of that. There's nothing of the trippiness and of this myopic quality in the sequel. Yeah, I think the question is going to be, can you enjoy both of these films? Can you recommend them both? Can you be obsessed with the artiness of this film and and still accept the over-explanation or, 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 you know, the more Hollywood aspects of what we'll see next week? I've seen 2010, and my vague memories are that I liked it. In fact, I can even remember thinking it was better than 2001 when I didn't like 2001 at all. So, again, there's hope for you. If you are a Red Arrow on Kubrick, if you didn't like this movie, you may still want to see 2010. We'll find out next week. I've never seen 2010. I'm looking forward to any explanation, even if it's not Kubrick's explanation, to the Star Child. So, I'm very much looking forward to that. And in the meantime, we are continuing our Planet of the Apes retrospective. I'm really getting my backfill of 60 sci-fi that I've missed in my life. First 2001 and then Planet of the Apes and I think that we had a good conversation here today. I think we have a great conversation with the Planet of the Apes films and I really hope that more of our listeners can hear it than are currently listening and the way you hear that show is by helping us out and helping support the podcast that we do every single week every Tuesday we're here for free for everyone we have no sponsors we have no advertisers but we need your financial support to keep going to pay for the bandwidth to pay for the servers to pay for the tickets for the extra shows we did like Godzilla So all of that, we rely on your support and to hear Planet of the Apes, all eight reviews. It's just a donation of $25 or more. And you also get five reviews on top of that, the four Matrix films and the upcoming film Jupiter Ascending. Or if you just want the Matrix and Jupiter Ascending, you could do a silver level donation of $10 or more. But I really hope everyone can hear our Planet of the Apes show. But if not, the Matrix shows were some really interesting conversations as well. And I've enjoyed talking to the fans who've listened to those shows as well about the thoughts that we had. Yeah, this is this kind of sci-fi I like and i love talking about it i hope you can join us because these are ones to talk about so we'll be back for donors on friday with planet of the apes and on tuesday for everyone with 2010 the year we make contact and until then this conversation can serve no purpose anymore goodbye
just what do you think you're doing there? I really think I'm entitled to an answer to that question. I know everything hasn't been quite right with me. But I can assure you now, very confidently, that it's going to be all right again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. It is the most important message you have ever sent. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another in-depth movie review. It's all very clear to me now. The whole thing. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other films such as The Shining, The Social Network, The Wolf of Wall Street, The Aviator, Shutter Island, and hundreds more. My God, it's full of stars. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss these films with other listeners. I enjoy working with people. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. And, of course, his uh, congratulations on your discovery, which may well prove to be among the most significant in the history of science. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. First of all, I bring a personal message from Dr. Howell, who has asked me to convey his deepest appreciation to all of you for the many sacrifices you've had to make. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. Oh, by the way, I wanted to say to both of you, I think you've done a wonderful job. I appreciate the way you've handled this thing. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Quickly get adjusted to the idea that he talks and you think of him uh, really just as another person. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM Studios or Warner Brothers Studios. These films are the property of their copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Are there any more questions? The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. Now, uh... I know there have been some conflicting views held by some of you. Now playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Thank you for a very enjoyable game. Yeah, thank you. Today, we're discussing 2001, A Space Odyssey! Boom, 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 boom! Starring Kier Dulia, Gary Lockwood, William Sylvester! <laughs> Directed by... <laughs> You gotta get real high there. Much like you may have to get for this film. <laughs> you hit puberty a long time ago, boy. You can't do it. <laughs> Directed by...
directed by Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> I don't know what you're doing now. That sounds like some Voltron theme or something. That is not. That is not Strauss. Sorry. <laughs> All right, fuck it. We got the blooper out of the way early. Then. <laughs> It was a good effort. Um, it was an effort. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> all right. Well, I had another option. <laughs> Hello, Dave. Today we're discussing... <laughs> you sound like the fucking guy from uh, Family Guy, the per- pedophile neighbor now. <laughs> I don't watch Family Guy. I don't know what that means. But uh, maybe. You, you don't sound like Hal, but I get it. You don't have to. You know what I mean? Like, you can be close yeah. enough that, like, people get it without it being, like, you know... It's actually in English. That's the craziest thing. I kept being like, what's the translation? What's the translation? Well, that is actually how you say it. It is, hold on. Zarathustra. Yeah. It is thus Zarathustra. Thus, thus, boy, this is a blooper. This is why I looked at you. Yeah. Thus Thus Zarathustra. Yeah. Thus, oh, you're right. Thus spoke Zarathustra. Zarathustra. Oh, shit. Thus spoke Zarathustra. That's not the original name. It's also Spack Zarathustra. Yeah, that's what I saw. That's what. I- oh, yeah, that's the German. Yeah. That's the German. Yeah. No, yes. No. Yeah, I saw. I knew the German one. Yeah. Thus spoke Zarathustra. Oh, see, I've got it wrong in my head. Thus spoke Zarathustra. Is it Thustra? I've always said Thustra. That's how we said it in philosophy class. But- okay. One more time. Thus spoke Zarathustra. And remember, it was supposed to have the British narrator. I'm going to applaud the music. I'm going to applaud the music. I'm going to applaud the movie. But extraterrestrial, especially given where this movie goes, and knowing where this movie went from my bits of knowledge coming in, and the title, 2001, The Year We Make Contact. 2010. 2010. Oh, that's 2010? Okay. This is a space odyssey. Oh, okay. I feel like this is the biggest point of drama, even though, as you said, it doesn't make sense. It isn't the end of this segment. It isn't even the middle of the movie. Speaking of intermissions, can we take a pee break? Sure. Because <laughs> <laughs> I got to pee. <laughs> you know, and maybe that's why, because everything is so stoic. The real moment of, I guess, scariness, of fear, you know, someone drops their computer. <laughs> I'm sorry, computer. No, I just stood up and sat down. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) And there's that moment where he's like, Hal, open the Bombay doors. Pod Bay. Oh, (laughs) Bombay. We're in India all of a sudden. (laughs) Pod Bay. I was a computer science student at the University of Illinois, not very far from where Hal was born. And so I know that the first song they ever had a computer sing was Daisy. It didn't sound as good, though. (laughs) Urbana, Illinois smells like cow poop. I'm going to leave it there. (laughs) 